All right, we have been talking about the created order of God and uh, what he has done. And when asked, we delved into a little bit of the science, the real science behind what is going on in terms of the Darwinian evolution uh, and how we can uh, best defend the scriptures against it rather than the historical position and by historical, I mean in my lifetime, where I was coming on the scene really as, as the creation uh, evolution debate was really hitting a pinnacle in the Christian community. You might say, well, that's in your lifetime? Yes. Um, largely Darwinianism was ignored, but then we had people trying to accommodate it in the scripture, and then we had a great battleground. And that battlefield really happened in the 80s in most of our Christian colleges and universities over whether we were going to teach six-day literal creation or whether we're going to teach an alternate theory of creation um, that was more in keeping with science, with the, the evolutionary models. And so we, um, that, that battle was waged then. Many schools went one direction and other schools went another direction. It was found its way into a lot of doctrinal statements of churches, because churches battled that as well. And uh, it was an important battle that uh, now really polarizes. I can go in and, and look into a book, and I can look at what they do with several events, and one of the events is what are they going to do with Genesis uh, 1 through 5, particularly, um, and tell you whether I'm going to study that book any further. And so um, uh, one of the Bibles that was very popular in Christian community was the Schofield Reference Bible. How many of you heard of the Schofield Reference Bible? See all of us old timers. Uh, it was a big, big deal. Well, Schofield came out and did not back up the six literal 24-hour days of creation. Uh, and that was a big deal. And it really set a bar there that, that created a battlefield. And rightly so. And so we had the defense of that um, over time. Now, we've come to a point now where we have enjoyed, and I do mean enjoyed because it really has benefited the Christian community, to have that battle been going on for now 40 years. And really 50 years, the 70s it was really engaged to with Wickham and some of those other guys. And now we have the scientific community that is caught up with the theological problems. So we had the theological battle back then. Are we going to trust God's word? Or are we going to trust what science is telling us? Now we have scientists coming and saying, well, we have, and not even necessarily Christian scientists, saying, well, there has to be an intelligent designer. And they're seeing intelligent design in things. And now we have 40 years of scientific investigation to help back up a position that we really took without it back in the 80s, 70s and 80s. And so now we can, we can challenge and, and, and engage these people on what they falsely call science, which is a, a scriptural reference. I just referenced the scripture, right? That they falsely call science. Science simply is a word that means knowledge. They falsely call this, we're the science. We know this for sure. Well, no, because uh, the fact that it's a theory tells you that it's not knowledge. Uh, what is a theory? A theory is a best guess. Uh, and it cannot become a theorem until we have a substantial amount supporting that. And then it doesn't become a law until we have studied it so thoroughly we find no possibility of it being broken uh, in our natural realm. Now you get into the supernatural, even the natural laws can be thrown out the window once you get into the supernatural. We're talking about natural order. These are natural laws. And we'll talk about those natural laws because God is the originator of those laws or those principles that we go off of. And so the one thing I did want to talk about that I referenced last week that I wanted to start with this, this today because it's going to introduce us into the study of sin and death very well, which is our next study in our series. And uh, that is a law of nature. And so if it's a law... Here's how science is supposed to work, okay? If something has been established as a law, 
and you have a theory that violates that law, guess what happens to your theory? It gets dumped. All right, because now to validate your theory, you would have to undermine a law. And so if your law runs contra or your theory runs contradictory to a law of nature, they're not, they shouldn't give you much traction at all to your theory unless you're willing to undermine this law of nature. That's how it's supposed to work. And so we put forward theories, theories, theories. And if, by the way, true science has to be tested, repeatedly tested, uh, that uh, we can examine the results. And when it comes to origins, you can't repeat it, can you? So it really doesn't fall in the line of, of science ever. It should never fall in the line of chemistry or biology uh, on a micro or macro level. doesn't matter. It just shouldn't fall into their purview. Why? Because it's not true science, because it's not repeatable or testable. It is philosophy. Let's understand that in the... Uh, liberal arts model it fall under philosophy uh, and for us religion falls under philosophy as well in the cultural in the liberal arts menu if you will it would fall under philosophy so these are philosophical questions and so people that want to throw forth science always just challenge them right away well repeat it repeat what you're saying happen make it testable repeatable and so you go to the church of evolution that our government supports and they have an equation there on the, on the cave of life, the hall of life or whatever. And I'm saying, well, repeat it. You have an equation right here. I understand the equation. So you do it. Make life out of nothing. Make life out of inert material without life. Do it. You have an equation right here. Print it out. Do, 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 do. Plus energy equals life. I was like, okay, do it. They can't. They cannot make life out of inert material. It's impossible. They have the equation there. They know what comprises our bodies. We know the makeup of our bodies. We know that we are electrical. We know that we are chemical. We are know that we have minerals and we have all these things that we have, but they cannot recreate, not even on a very simple level. We can modify it. We can toy around with its genetics, but we cannot create life. And therefore, it is not repeatable, it's not true science, it's not testable. So it's philosophy. But we do have some laws that guide our philosophy of origins. And those laws need to be adhered to. And thus, theories, philosophies, that aren't really theories of science, they're philosophies, uh, approach to life, uh, need to be examined based upon the laws of nature. Do they violate these laws of nature? If they violate those laws of nature, then throw it out. Now, the laws of nature are determined by our current experience, okay? Our current world. And our current world is different than it used to be. Biblically, what did our world used to be like? No ocean, okay? You're referring to the flood, even before that. What did our world used to be like? But after that. It wasn't a world then, okay? You went too far back. It's not void and empty, all right? What is our world used to be like? Perfect, okay? There was no sin. There was no death. It was perfect. It was created good. And so we should see some evidences that recognize that our laws of nature, the natural order we talk about, is actually unnatural, the natural state, that is its created state, we have never had contact with since Adam and Eve, including Cain and Abel themselves. So one generation we lost the natural order. We are in the unnatural order, and death is unnatural. I know it's unavoidable, but it's not natural. It's not natural to kill things to eat them. Uh, that, not only for humans, but for lions, tigers, and bears. Okay? Oh, my. All right, I put in the word. I, I put that thing in there. And so uh, we only know the natural order, we call it, but it's really the unnatural order since sin. And that introduced us to the law of thermodynamics. And these are, there's a series of laws of thermodynamics 
that talk about the conservation of energy. And I'm not going to try to uh, bring you up to speed on all that and all the vocabulary that you need to really understand all that. That's not my purpose here. I simply want to tell you there is a law, there are laws of thermodynamics. Not just one, but multiples. And the second of those laws is called the law of entropy. And again, the verb, the word doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to you. It basically means that everything, in terms of energy, moves from order to chaos. It moves from, from developed to undeveloped. It moves from very patterned to disassociated. That is, if left to itself, without adding energy into the equation and left to itself, it will simply deteriorate to its lowest form. It will scatter. You know the law of thermodynamics, the second law of thermodynamics, because you see it every day. Okay? What happens to things that you create that are orderly if left to themselves? Do they become more orderly over time or less orderly over time? Disorderly. You know this. You know that happens in your yard. You know that happens in your kitchen. You know that happens to your body. That if you do not spend some investment of time and energy, it will deteriorate. It will just move down the scale until you are dust again. And so we add energy. And that energy means that I'm going to go out there to, to maintain order, whatever that order is. And I understand that the natural order, you might say, well, it's all randomness out there. Well, it really isn't. In fact, there's a whole field of study called patterned randomness that even randomness isn't really random. And, and so there, there are things involved that we can predict. And the more you, things you put into a model, the more predictive you can be. And so the placement of trees uh, might seem random to you in the forest, but it's, it's predictive to a degree because we understand how the seeds work, how the wind works, how the, the proliferation of it, how fire works. And, but you have so many inputs into the equation that it becomes really uh, unworkable because there's too many uh, elements engaged in it. Uh, animal life, bird life, bug life, all those kind of things you have to add in the equation. But technically it's not truly random because you have all these other things that all have patterns of their own that they're investing in. But we look at things and we see them just moving toward more randomness without energy involved. Now why is that second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, so very important to our philosophy of origins? Because you have to go from perfect order to less order. You can't, you do not, we do not ever see it reverse without adding intelligent application of energy. Okay? And so if you go out and you watch the bird kingdom, um, you, and you go out into your forest, and you see a, a group of twigs and branches and leaves that form kind of a circular thing with like a cup in it. What is that called? A nest. nest. Alright, did that just happen that the, the wind and rain and everything just formed a bunch of branches into kind of a cup thing up in the, up in the tree? Did that happen by accident? Okay, how did it get there? A bird worked. It used its energy and its instincts God put in it to gather those things and weave them together. Um, and they didn't always use that. Some of them use mud. And there various, I know there's lots of different kinds of nests. But we can recognize that. We go out in the forest and we look, cut down a tree and say, oh, there's a bird's nest in this tree. You know, you get it home, it's your Christmas tree, and you realize, oh, um, I just cut down a bird's nest. And maybe there's an egg still in it, okay? Uh, but we recognize pattern, that some energy went into it, some thought, even if it's instinctual thought, goes into bringing it into order. Because um, left to itself, twigs and branches don't weave themselves together into this nice little cup that holds a couple of eggs uh, the size that that bird lays. 
right? And so entropy says you have to add energy to become more organized. And that's why the evolutionary model breaks down very quickly and why they have to keep putting, inserting energy somewhere. Because at some point, they have to have a surge in orderliness. In other words, they believe we went from randomness to highly evolved. I mean, we're, the, the, the human body, and really all mammals, the mammalian body is an incredibly organized, intricate uh, mechanism. Okay, organic mechanism, but a mechanism nonetheless. With not just one or two uh, uh, fields, but, but with dozens and dozens of very complex, interdependent mechanizations going on. And so, you know, your brain doesn't function as a brain without being connected to the digestive system and that, that it has to have its own mechanizations that break it all down and then feed the cholesterol back up to your brain that your brain needs to think, and you have all of these things going on in your body, all specialized and all derived from this double helix, right? Uh, the DNA and the little proteins. It all starts with little proteins that are little machines that put together different kinds of cells to do different little jobs. Okay, and so a very complex process. We have not even come close to that process in our highest form of manufacturing. We can't come close to what happens in the uterus of a woman. We can't come close to it. That, that work of those little proteins that are told by the DNA what to do and put things together to build specific cells, some to pump blood, some to carry blood, some to be blood, some to be muscle, some to be skin, hair, all those things. I mean, it's just incredible to think of what that is. And so we are going from all this complexity, is the word we use. It is very complex. It is very ordered. Well, how do we get here from random to complex? Well, that violates the law of thermodynamics. So we know that energy... Without being, that, that and, and matter and energy are interrelated, right? You know that? So that's why um, there is a conservation of energy. There's only so much energy, we, we, our, our conclusion is, and that it either takes the form of matter or as, as heat or some other expression. And so energy is conserved. There is, a, there is a balance point. You can't, we're not having energy added to our system. All right, is the idea behind that. And so um, the tree is holding energy in the form of tree, wood. And then we burn that, and we are turning it into heat. It's that energy, conservation of energy. The energy doesn't disappear. It goes somewhere else, right? It becomes somewhere else, and it stays in the system. And yet they are com contending is that the energy is becoming more and more complex, but we have a law, an observable, testable law that says it will always go to less complexity. It will always go to randomness. And so your philosophy fails. And so every Christian should know and have some grasp with the second law, a scientific law of thermodynamics, uh, and, the, and the concept of entropy. That everything goes to disorder, left to itself. We have to not just, and random energy does not produce complex systems. If I randomly apply energy, does it create order? What is random energy? Tornado. Lightning strike is random energy. You, your kid walking around with a stick hitting stuff is random energy. Does it build anything? Does it help develop anything? Does anything move from being a monkey to a monkey man because your kid hit it in the head really hard with a baseball bat? Okay, you have your kid walk around with a baseball bat. That's random energy. Okay, is it going to be a benefit or a curse? Okay, give Trevor a baseball bat. Let him come into your house for about three hours unsupervised and tell me, is it going to be more or less organized? 
That's random energy. Okay? Especially if you've gotten like three chocolate bars before you got dropped in there, okay? Okay? That, so we're not just talking the, the, that we have to add energy wherever randomly uh, because we know that some energy will destroy you, right? So if you get hit by a bolt of lightning, that's random energy. I, I know that the Flash became Superman because he got hit by a weird bolt of lightning, all right? But that's fantasy. And let me just share with you, evolution is also fantasy. Because people get hit by bolts of lightning, die. They get injured. They go blind. They lose their hair. They have cardiac arrest. Okay? That's what happens to you. You don't become super fast, super smart, super anything. You become super dead. Okay? So random... Bursts of energy is not what's required. What is required to, to break entropy is thoughtful application of energy. So it's not just application of energy, it's thoughtful application of energy, which means that there has to be intelligence behind it. We have to add it just at the right time. Can you imagine going into the doctor and you're having a heart thing and, and someone says, and they're going to zap you? How much? Just pick a number. Boom. When should we do it? Whenever. Boom. You know, well, what's going to happen? Are you going to come out of there alive? No. We know exactly how many joules we want to shock you with. We know how much electricity the heart uses. It's very carefully monitored. It's very carefully applied um, because to do it wrong is going to do injury. We have to have intelligent application of energy to move from chaos to order. And so the second law of thermodynamics is your friend. Laws of true science are your friends. They do not war against God's word. They affirm it. Because what does the Bible say? The Bible says that all, everything's leading to death. It hasn't always been that way. Since sin. Sin has introduced that. Right? And so... Sin and its result of deterioration is really the law of thermodynamics. The law of entropy should be the law of sin. <laughs> entropy is equal largely to the law of sin. Sin and death. Because the world wasn't made to go to chaos. Remember, we started off with chaos where Mrs. Fry took us. You know, earth was well, boy, without form. Uh, and darkness covered it. That's what began with the raw material. God then said, let there be light. He brings order. Notice, intelligent application of power. The power of the word of God. He spoke and order came. Intelligent design application of power. That's how you negate entropy. Um, but uh, there wasn't really entropy at that point, and so until sin. Sin comes on the point, on the, on the planet, on the earth, because of Adam and Eve and Satan, and God curses it. He curses man, he curses the ground, he curses the serpent, and now we have death. We have entropy, the introduction of entropy, of deterioration. And so that's the opposite of evolution, and that's devolution. We are devolving, we are getting... Weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker and weaker. And this is measurable. Because we are seeing it accelerate. And this is the other part of that, is that it, you've seen the illustration of the snowball. starts off small, rolls down the hill, pretty soon it's huge, and it's got like people's hands and arms sticking out of it. I've never seen that, by the way. Have you ever seen a snowball with hands and arms sticking out of it because it rolled down a hill? Now, we call that an avalanche, buries you, you're dead again. Okay, this is all about death tonight. No, that's next week, actually. And so, um, but it accelerates over time. Why genetically could you marry your sister if your name was Cain? You have perfect genes. You're once removed from perfection. And that was okay for a long period of time. 
When was it that it became that you could not marry near, near relatives? At what point in the Bible? What point did that begin? It was broken, but at what point did it begin that God declared you should not marry near relatives? It's, no, it's the law. <laughs> no, it was the law. Moses. Which means that even after the flood, it was okay to marry near relatives uh, for, what, about 2,000 years. 1,000 years. 1,000 years from the flood to Abraham. Well, Moses would be six. Uh, 1,400 years or so. So um, for all that time, it was okay to marry very close relatives, even sisters, certainly first cousins, half-sisters. And we see that very happening. And we not only see it happening before the law, we even see instances of it after the law. But after the law, what happened? As you get farther and farther away from perfection, it created more and more problems. You could still do it, but the children you're producing are going to have some consequences. They're going to have genetic deformities. And we understand that. I understand I've got a bull yak out here that I'm not going to let him mate with his daughter because I want to keep the genetics uh, strong. Because if I let that happen too frequently, I start having problems. Okay? And so, and, and we have to do that. Well, that's showing that we are deteriorating. That we start off perfect genes. That's why it's okay for Cain to marry his little sister. Because that's all there was to marry. Okay? Where did Cain get his wife? Well, he married his sister. Deal with it. Okay? Why do you have a problem with that? Because of entropy. You're at the way far end of it where it's accelerating. Are we stronger and healthier than they were then? No. In fact... You are weaker than a Roman soldier of the lowest class. Because they describe the basic requirements of Roman soldiers, what they had to carry, and how long they had to carry, and how far they had to go in a set amount of time. And most of your Olympic athletes would have struggles to accomplish those requirements. But it was expected of all the Roman soldiers. All of them did that. And so when we read the Iliad and we see these Greek uh, men and like Achilles and those kind of guys and they're fighting each other and you're going, the way they're describing it, it's like, well, they're gods. No, they were just very strong men, very healthy men. And, and we know that we've deteriorated since then. In fact, it's accelerating so fast that now we can see it generationally. And I have bad news for those of you who are young enough to be my son. All right? You're not as much of a man as I am. And I'm not talking about machoism. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about your blood work versus my blood work. Do you notice what's being touted on the radio and TV commercials? I imagine I don't have TV, but I hear it on the radio. Men, you got to get your T-booster. T-booster, T-booster, I hear on the radio constantly. Oh, I'm like, yeah, these poor guys, they do. And the sad thing is, once you get human-derived testosterone or testosterone boosters, then your natural testosterone drops even farther, and now you become dependent upon testosterone boosters. So I go into a doctor, get my blood work done, and he looks at it, and he says, wow, your T-levels are what men used to be like. I was like, well, I don't drink out of anything plastic, um, well, Gatorades. But I avoid plastic, I avoid this, I avoid this, I avoid this, I avoid this. And he says, oh, well, that's all you need to do to keep your testosterone. But he says, we're not seeing it in young men. He's saying, we're seeing testosterone levels in young men, 20-year-olds, that we think are 60-year-olds. They're so low. Okay. Vitamin D levels. One generation ago, you'd go out in the sun and get vitamin D on your skin. And now, um, this is not me, it's medical science saying that you cannot go out in the sun and somehow your body is not converting sunshine to vitamin D like my generation did if you're young enough to be my child. Your body is not as efficient at it 
at getting vitamin D from the sun as my generation was. Okay, so the deterioration is happening quicker. It accelerates. And this is what sin and death does. And that's why God noticed throughout the Bible, you had long life, and then what? It was shortened to what at Noah? Hundred and some years, almost you're going to go. Then what? Seventy. If you live more than 70 years, are you more than 70 years old, Mrs. Fry? All right, so she's on borrowed time. She took it from somebody else. Um, so anything over 70 years, 70 years is life expectancy um, from God. Um, what is life expectancy today? Do you know? Ah, Okay, life expectancy, uh, median age in most places is one of the best ways to measure that um, is, uh, in terms of earthwide population, is skewed. They skew those numbers because they don't count the tens of millions of babies they kill. Zero. Add up all those zeros and put it against any of Mrs. Fry's and you will get what? A lot less than what they tell you. They tell you women will live to 70-something, and men will live, but that's not true either. Even if we give them that, that's not really true. I've seen those people living. I've gone to nursing homes. I see what they call living, and it's not living. Because they're dead. Their brains are gone. They have out, their bodies have been made to survive and outlive their mind. And I tell people, we're not really making people live longer, we're making them die longer. It's taking longer to die. Okay, I can hook your body up to a machine and keep it alive, can't I? We have the capacity to do that. But we are not living longer, we are dying longer. We've just prolonged the death experience. And that's why we're outliving our brains and minds, and that's something I don't want to do. And so, don't let medical science confound you that somehow we can undo death. Not true. Death is accelerating. Again, they don't count all the numbers, and our dependency, chemical dependency and machine dependency um, is skewing all those numbers. We're just making you die longer by putting in little electrical things to keep your heart beating when it stops beating. Pacemakers. Okay, and so we're prolonging death. We're not really uh, giving people, and that's why philosophically now we have a problem, don't we? Now we have quality of life issues. What created quality of life issues? Medical science prolonging death. Kind of funny. They can keep you alive, but you have to sign a paper saying don't use any of your extraordinary measures. I just want to go when it's time to go. You have to medically ask them for that. So I, the medical community is like bipolar. They can't decide if they want to keep you alive or kill you because they want both, seemingly. So law of entropy is there. Sin and death is a reality of this world since Adam and Eve. We're going to talk about that a lot more next week. Any other questions that you have? I was meant to start with that, but I got kind of excited about telling you about law of thermodynamics. <laughs> Any other questions you had about creation evolution stuff, about missing links, things like that. Any? Yeah, God didn't create three gardens of Eden that all went bad, you know, or four or five. Where does, where do, let's just investigate this a little bit, because really with the flood we're down to eight, right? And so genetically, we know genetically that the entire human race, um, they have has come from one pair, one pair. We, we, they have decided that, that's the research that's out there, is that the whole race is from one pair. Um, and that's exactly what the Bible says, so that shouldn't surprise us. But reproduction, genetic study is, is very interesting uh, because people, and there's a cool little book called One Blood. 
If you ever get a chance to get a hold of it, I have a copy of my library, I think. I might have lent it out and not gotten it back. That happens a lot to me. It's called One Blood. And um, genetically, they say, well, what was Adam and Eve? Well, we know what Adam and Eve were. They were light brown skin, light brown eyes, and light brown hair. They were brown. So if you think Adam and Eve, Eve was walking through the garden with really long hair to cover every important part, um, because that's what you saw in your Sunday school material. Um, no, she was not blonde. There's no way she was blonde. Nor blue-eyed. No way. Light brown, light brown, light brown. They were brown people. And the fact is, all of you are shades of brown. And I get tired of people talking about all this race stuff right now. We're one race. The human race. What race am I? Human. And that's, a, that, that's not being obnoxious. That's being genuine that that's what we are. We're all brown. The only ones that are white are albinos, who have no pigmentation in their skin. Okay? If I come up to you and say, this is white, can you see the difference between white and brown? Am I lighter brown than other people's brown? Sure, but I'm still brown. This is white. This is not white. Well, this part is. <laughs> this is not white. <laughs> yeah, Paul and I are like, yeah, our, our hair is white. Um, and so genetically, um, we know Adam and Eve were light brown, light brown, light brown, um, because out of that, that's the only way you can get the diversity we have. How quickly does diversity occur? Yeah, if you have... If you have a perfect set of everything, diversity can happen immediately. Um, and then the question is, well, how can these groups, how can all of these people be a really dark brown in this part of the country, and all these people way up in the north be a really light brown, really light brown, okay, up there in Denmark and other Scandinavian places? Um, how does that division happen? Well, we know that there was a division after the flood as they separated in there. We know there's particularly a division uh, that happened after the Tower of Babel. It wasn't skin color that divided us. What divided mankind was language, which is why the Bible talks about people, tribes, tongue, because that's one of the fundamental divisions of man, is languages before genetics. And so uh, the language separated everybody, and now we have isolation. And much like what we talked about with moths in London, <laughs> let's talk about who's going to do well in the north. Light-skinned or dark-skinned people? Light-skinned people are going to do okay in the north, why? Because as soon as they get sun, it goes right into their system. They process it right into vitamin D very quickly because there's not enough melatonin in their skin, and they are going to prosper. They are going to flourish where there's less sun. Um, and when they go into where there's a lot of sun, they get burnt. You ever notice that? You notice that on me every now and then? I come in and I've been working in the garden too much and get burnt. I have a scar on my back from getting burned this year because um, I wasn't paying attention. At Mrs. It's Mrs. Fry's fault because she let me work in her garden too long, I'm sure. <laughs> and so, and the darker skinned people would prosper where there is more sun, more intense sun. And, and again, does that mean that you, but even when dark-skinned people go up north, they struggle, even today, physically. All right, And so we have to have supplements, things like that, and they have to be careful. And so, uh, and by the way, even dark-brown people sunburn. Okay, we, we don't think they do, but they do. And they have to be cautious about it, too. And so the division had nothing to do with skin color, but once you divided by language... Now you have an isolated group of genetic material that is not perfect because we are many, many generations from it and death and sin has occurred. And now this language group has isolated itself off into this area and now they are going to be 
developing independent of another language group, that they're going to develop their own physical characteristics based upon a concentration of their genetic material, and we start having the, the idea of different races, which is a good word, different uh, genomes of men. And that's where it comes from. It's very similar to what happened in Australia, where we got this isolation, and now we have development of all this animal life distinct from many other parts of the earth because of the isolation that's there after the flood. And so um, uh, this is the, the it, it wasn't skin color created these dif differences. Skin color was created because of other differences. It is the effect, not the cause. Uh, and that's, again, the reverse of what everyone's saying. Uh, and that's why uh, I grew up in an era where interracial marriages were really frowned upon when I was a child in the, in the South, okay, where the Dixiecrats were still very much around in the 60s and 70s. Um, I know we were, we were getting out of it, but the Dixiecrats were there, and segregation uh, was ju had just gone in the 60s, I was alive, but I wasn't, but when I'm a teenager, you know, you don't look at that girl. She's too dark for you. And I was like, well, that's stupid. You know, she didn't have a choice. I didn't have a choice about that. You know, what does that have anything to do with anything? And, but it was still very much reality. And, uh, but genetically, we know that there is a great benefit to taking isolated genomes and now reintroducing variety. I try to do that with all of my animals I'm breeding. I don't care if it's goats, rabbits, viacs, llamas, ducks. I want genetic diversity, so I gotta go out there and find another male duck out there that's not related to these gals so I can have healthy ducks. Well, it would make, if people were thoughtful and had any concept of true science, uh, the idea of interracial, well, we're one race, so there is no such thing as interracial marriage because none of you are marrying cats or dogs that I know of, okay? Um, and if, I, if you are, I don't want to know of it. But, um, and so because we get one genome group, another genome, and combine them, and, and that's strength. Uh, there's also weaknesses because you're getting the weaknesses of both, but you're getting the strengths of both. And you actually end up with a benefit at the end, and, and I still contend that one of the benefits is, is to the American uh, black athlete is the intermixing of genomes. Um, because most of them have a greater variety than others of us. Um, my genome is a weak one. I know blonde hair, blue eyes, red hair is even more rare but that's a weakened genome, and it would be benefited by brown. Okay, it would be healthier. And so genetically, we understand these things. We do it in the breeding process all the time with our animal life, and it's silly to interbreed on a human level, and we end up necessarily getting genetic deformity. And it's a big problem on the reservations here in New Mexico, Arizona, and it's a big problem in the reservations um, of the intermarriage. Uh, you just get too many close relatives shared, and you're going to have problems. It would be better to marry. And by the way, one of my favorite founding fathers, one of his biggest positional statements that most of you don't know about was that we should never, ever, ever put Native Americans separate from us. We should just marry them all. And his biggest thing was you should be giving your daughters to their sons and we should be giving or ha having their daughters for our sons. We should just totally intermarry with them. Okay, Patrick Henry was his name. And that was his biggest position. He said, what are we doing segregating these people? We should be intermarrying with them. We'll all be healthier. Because he saw in them a physique that they didn't have. Well, that went long. Yes? I have a question on that. Um, skin color. 
How do we get population all over? Um, because of the glaciers. There we go. Boy, we're not coming. Um, one of our concepts of glaciation, glaciation happened after the flood. It's one of the ways God used to get the water down. Uh, and so there's a huge, all glacier ice is fresh water. And so we know that it doesn't come, I know the ocean goes up against it, but it's fresh water. And, and glaciers, of course, are not, not just formed by snowfall, um, but we believe that after the flood there was a huge glaciation, and we know how far south that glaciation got. It got way south. Uh, in Ohio, we have a Christian camp at the GRBC on Kelly's Island, and one of the people, things people go there for is for the glacial formations that were left behind from glaciers coming across and creating the Great Lakes, for example. So we know that there was glaciers pretty far south, and we assume pretty far north from, and so we are from the outer edges. So there was really just a band of, of free water, and that would have allowed people to redistribute just walking on ice, just walk till you get to land again. Um, and that would certainly be it. And, and we know also that they did have the capacity to build boats because their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather built that big one that survived the big flood. Okay, if he can build a boat like that, they knew how to build boats to traverse water. Yes? And, and if you want to get biblical, if you want to give a biblical example, I think one of the neat ones to study is Enoch. I know it's not in your bio. We talk about the book of Enoch. But one of the things that Enoch, that record, uh, the book of Enoch records is that he was told to go and travel all the way down south to the extremity, which means that he went from somewhere in the Middle East all the way to what we call Antarctica. And God was going to show him some things there about the created world. And uh, which is interesting, you're not allowed to go to Antarctica. Do you know that? By law, you're not allowed to go. It is the only international peace treaty that no country has ever broken. So only scientists are allowed to go down there, and very special people like Al Gore. Um, and so uh, you have to have, very, even if you get permission to go on one of those ecotourism thing to Antarctica. You're really only getting inside that, that one parallel, and you're really not getting, and there is no, we haven't really found the South Pole exactly, but uh, you're really only getting to uh, the shoreline, and then you're not allowed to do much. And you have to go through a special class, but it costs a lot of money, but you're not allowed to go. So if you want to head down there and do the Enoch thing, you wouldn't be allowed. All right, yes. Correct. A lot of social pressure, but it's misguided. And again, this is what happens when we misapply Scripture. And what does the Scripture tell us? I mean, Scripture is like a law, an old document, right? What does it say in the New Testament for Christians? What matters? Jew or Gentile? Slave or free? These things matter. They shouldn't. We should have been teaching God's Word better. And, and should have been listening to men like Patrick Henry uh, that says, just marry them, and then they'll be with us, and we'll all be one country if we all marry each other. So the, the solution to uh, racial discord is intermarriage. Okay, just go marry them all. Okay, I got three single people right here, so go find someone different than you and marry them. Uh, right? How can anyone be mad at you? Well, they still are, because it's being, it's, false. It's being, uh, yeah, we're being exploited by people who have another agenda, and the Christian community has been a part of that because we have, we have, we have promoted it, the segregation, and a lot of it from the Deep South. That Bible Belt has been associated with the Dixiecrats, who were the slave owners, and the segregationalists, um, uh, and you've probably heard that a lot this past week at the Republican National Convention. You know, Lincoln was the first Republican to win presidential election. So Lincoln is the Republican Party's banner. And 
let's, and all that's associated with Lincoln as a liberator of, of that. But um, we understand biblically where these differences, where these, and it's really not the skin color, it's really your language barrier. And so uh, we have misplaced God's word and misapplied it, and the end result is always going to be division and hatred and ethnocentrism. I believe I, my culture's the best. And that's um, contrary to God's word because the church should be a culture to itself that transcends all other cultures. All right, let's have a word of prayer. We'll get you guys out of here tonight. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word, for its trustworthiness. And uh, Lord, we uh, know that the world rages against it and you just laugh. And Lord, help us to have that same willingness to kind of laugh at their ignorance, at their philosophical position that keeps them from being able to admit the truth and to evaluate truth and to even receive facts and even to function under their own laws that they see and identify. And so Lord, help us to um, just communicate your word to people have a confidence in it first for ourselves, for our faith and our walk, and then to view with great uh, suspicion the quote-unquote knowledge of men that runs contrary to your word. We pray that you might uh, find us faithfully serving you till your coming. Lord, we know that the world is running down, it's deteriorating because of sin. And Lord, we thank you that you have resolved the sin problem. We look forward to that time when we'll no longer have to deal with the effects of sin in your presence. And until that time, we pray it might serve you and follow you. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. So next week, sin and death, look them up. The verses. Oh, I didn't give you verses. I gave you quotes. I'm asking you for the verses. But now you have Google, so now they'll tell you where all those verses came from. But I'm going to make you do the work anyway.